this is Cindy Martinez, and welcome to the neighborhood. Hello, we are back. Um, it's been a while, you guys, and I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't post last week. If you saw on our Instagram or our Twitter or even our Facebook, I needed a break. You know, every day it's just more and more and more piling on, and um, it's definitely, it's a, it's a huge effect on my men not just my mental health, I feel like everybody's mental health, everybody's really going through it, and um, I, I just needed some time, you know, and I, my birthday was last week as well, I turned 29, this was not how I expected my 29th birthday to go, to be honest, but it is what it is, and um, yeah, like I said, I'm having a hard time, and it's because I'm always on social media, and the thing is, like, I, I've got some friends who have completely, like, gotten off social media, they just couldn't take it anymore, they can handle it, and, um, they've been telling me the same thing, that I need to get off, but it's impossible, like, I've got this, this podcast here, and I have to manage the Twitter, and the Instagram, and the Facebook, and then I've got to, um, and then on top of that, I've got, like, my photography Instagram, my photography Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, my personal Twitter, like, my personal Instagram. It's just all these things every day that I'm, like, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's, like, I, I needed a couple of days. And today I woke up and it was just all the anxiety once again on top of my chest. And I'm doing my breathing exercises and I'm trying to calm down, but it is crazy. It has been a crazy couple of weeks, and bear with me, because I want to be talking for a few minutes before I get into the paranormal case. Um, first of all, the George Floyd case. Finally, all four officers are now arrested and charged, and um, so that's good. Uh, the FBI has picked up Breonna Taylor's case, um, but unfortunately, there's still no arrest or firing of the officers. Also, the police report was released to the public, and it was, like, a slap in the face, a, a, like, fuck you. It was a joke. I mean, it was empty. It was like there was nothing in it. And then under injuries, it said none. Um, so could you please explain the fucking eight bullets that she took? It's fucking disgusting. So that, ooh, man, that, that really got to me. And then um, on the positive for the Breonna Taylor case is that the city did pass a, uh, unanimously passed a ban on no-knock warrants in Louisville, Kentucky, and they named it Breonna's Law. Again, this is a positive, and I'm very happy for it, but I'm really hoping that um, they get moving on arresting the killers. I really hope so. Another thing that I did not expect to wake up to um, at all was a Madeline McCann update. Holy shit, that was wild. Um, so it seems that there's a new suspect um, in the case, and he's currently incarcerated in Germany. Um, he's a convicted rapist, and we don't know anything about him except his first name is Christian. And, um, I did see his mugshot. He looks like a piece of shit, because, of course, um, 
But yes, he's a convicted rapist, and um, he was in the area, he's believed to have been in the area in Portugal where Madeline went missing. Um, he did live in Portugal from 97 to 2007, and um, I read some depictions of him, and he sounds like an asshole. I mean, he sounds like a piece of shit. He's a moocher, he's hot-headed, he's untrustworthy, you know, he's a slob. It was just all kinds of shit came, coming out about him. And um, apparently, so now, not only do we have Portugal law enforcement and British law enforcement, now we have German law enforcement all working together. But um, apparently the um, German police, they have significant evidence against this Christian guy. And with it, they have announced that she is definitely dead which I mean at this point it's been 13 years like I mean you have to know by now that she's not alive um but yes they have significant evidence against him and it would seem that he is the one that killed her um also Germany has criticized Portugal and Portugal police for their very slow investigation so, you know, there's some tension going on there. So I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, another fucking update, Lori Vallow. Oh my God, what is going on the past couple weeks? So finally, 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 Lori Vallow's husband, uh, Chad Daybell, has been taken into custody and a warrant was finally executed on his home in Idaho. And um, with that, after nine months, nine months missing, they have found the remains of Valo's children, Ty Lee and Joshua. They were 17 and 7. They found them on Chad Daybell's property. So, ooh, that one got to me too. I hope they fucking rot in prison. I can't fucking believe these people. You know, this is like Casey Anthony all over again. But, I mean, they better get hard time for this because... I cannot believe Casey Anthony's walking today, and this Lori Vallow case is, like, it's very similar, so she fucking better get hard time. Oh, gosh. Oh, another update. Golden State Killer. The Golden State Killer. Um, this I just read today, because I'm recording this on the 15th, um, so this just came out today. The Golden State Killer, D'Angelo, um, it would seem that he took a, uh, plea bargain. So he's going to plead guilty on all charges at his hearing on June 29th. And um, he did it to avoid a trial and the death penalty because the demonic piece of shit knew he wasn't going to stand a chance. So we're not going to get to see this trial, but doesn't matter. I mean, we won anyway. We were still victorious. We got that motherfucker. Another gigantic piece of news that came out today on June 15th, um, the Supreme Court today ruled 6-3 to three that, quote, an individual's homosexuality or transgender status is not relevant to employment decisions. Basically meaning that you cannot discriminate against a homosexual or transgender person in the workplace and you cannot use those means to fire them or um, not hire them. So that is like a huge, huge step. Um, and I, I can't, personally, I can't believe it because six to three. I mean, this is mostly a conservative Supreme Court 
and um, John Roberts, who dissented in 2015 when deciding the legalization of gay marriage. He flipped and voted yay for this. And then um, Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed by Trump. Um, these are two unprecedented but historic votes, and especially after the Trump administration reversed protections from discrimination in the U.S. healthcare system for trans people. This happened last week, and today this passed in the Supreme Court. So it is insane. And it's coming at a time where finally, finally, the violence and murders of black transgender people are coming to light. And little by little, the Black Lives Matter movement is starting to amplify them. And they showed out in Brooklyn and LA for black trans lives over the weekend. And I only hope to see improvement here and justice for them. And, you know, the fight is far from over, and I'm, I'm going to name a few of the recent victims of, of violence. Um, Ayana Dior, Tony McDade, Dominique Remy Fells, and Rhea Melton. Um, those are just in the past month, okay? The, the, just the past month. There's hundreds, if not thousands more. And, um, I'm glad that, you know, finally they're they're starting to take these huge steps for black trans lives. And, you know, I think I think this is really this is truly a revolution, I feel like. You know, we're we're showing out for black lives, we're showing out for transgender rights, we're showing out and we're not shutting up and we're gonna keep fighting until there's change. And I know it doesn't happen overnight. I bitched about it at the podcast blackout. I get it, but like we're really trying and we're not stopping. And you know, we can only go up from here. So I'm really excited about that. I'm sorry if I'm so like energized. It's just it's been a while since I got on the mic and like Every couple of days, something was happening, and I'd write it down and be like, I need to talk about this. Um, but something else I wanted to talk about uh, is Robert Fuller. There are black men being lynched in 2020. I'm going to say it again. There are black men being lynched in 2020. Robert Fuller was a 24-year-old man who was found hanging from a noose in Palmdale, California, in a park that sits in front of City Hall. His family said he had no history of mental illness or suicidal tendencies, and when they tried to rule it a suicide, um, the community was outraged and they demanded the CCTV footage, and that's when the Palmdale PD and the mayor said there's no cameras in front of City Hall. Like, how? That's just a load of bullshit. Um, so Billy Jensen, my boy, and I've said his name many times on this podcast because he is my true crime godfather. Um, he said, nah, that's, nah, that's not going to take. Um, so this guy used his platform to hound the mayor, city officials, and the sheriffs, and then Billy drove down to Palmdale, California, and he found four cameras facing where Robert was found. And then four more in the surrounding businesses. So the mayor then deleted his Twitter and then the next day resurfaced and threw the PD under the bus. And then city officials came out and are now in support of an independent investigation. 
Billy fucking Jensen. He did the damn thing. I'm like, oh man, I'm so fucking proud of him. Like, he did not take that sitting down. Palmdale did not take that sitting down. And, you know, Robert Fuller's not the only one. There was another man found 65 miles away. There were two other men, and I don't, I don't remember where, but I think it was Florida. So this is a pattern, okay? This is a pattern. Black men are getting lynched in 2020, okay? Honestly, after all this time, after everything that's happened, you're sitting at home and you're saying racism isn't fucking real? Guess what? <laughs> Guess fucking what? All right. I'm ready to get into the episode with you guys. Thank you for sitting with me for the past, like, 12, 13 minutes while I, you know, talked myself into an asthma attack. Um, actually, no, I have more to say. I have more to say. Um, Seattle. Seattle. Oh, my goodness. Seattle is doing the fucking thing. Okay, so... I'm going to explain this to you a little bit. I don't know everything, but I'm going to be honest. I I saw a lot of, like, back and forth over what's going on in Seattle. So I decided myself to look into it um, not using, you know, national media. I went on Instagram, and I searched for the hashtag Chaz, and then the new one, Chop. I searched for that myself. I also went on um, comotv.com, which is the uh, news cycle in Seattle. It's local Seattle news. So what's going on in Seattle is that um, they have pretty much taken over like six city blocks in Capitol Hill. Okay. They're calling it the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. Now... National media is pretty much, and this is mostly, like, Fox News, but, like, national media, they're pretty much reporting, like, violence and domestic terrorism, and then Fox even, like, got caught manipulating images, which is embarrassing for them. Um, actually, no, not really. It's just something that they typically do. That's just something that they do. Um... But yeah, so I looked into it myself um, by following the Instagram hashtags and um, looking for posts from people who are actually there. And then I, I looked into Seattle local, local news and um, pretty much the consensus of everyone in there and everyone outside of there is that it's actually really peaceful and organized. Um, and I know that the whole domestic terrorism thing is because they took over the East Precinct in Seattle, which is right there in Capitol Hill. Um, so I know that's like part of the whole thing. Um, but like residents in the area, they're reporting it as peaceful and friendly and people can walk in and out like as much as they want, you know, and like, um, residents say that, I mean, it does get a little noisy, but it usually dies down around like 1130 midnight, um, and more and more people are getting curious about it and showing up. And it's, like, it's really welcoming. It's really friendly. Like, the second you walk in, they offer you a mask. They offer you hand sanitizer. You know, there's food. And it's basically, like, a huge block party. Um, and, like, um, the mayor isn't really... I mean, she's not sending her um, police department in with, like, with force or anything. In fact, city council unanimously passed... Um, a ban on tear gas, rubber bullets, and flashbangs for crowd control. 
I think that's fucking amazing. And I've said this a million times, like, don't fuck with Seattle. Seattle, when they need to, they show out, they organize, and they bring the problem to your fucking doorstep. I have said this before. I know for a fact that I told George this once, like, do not fuck with Seattle, ever. And they're doing it. Like, do I take issue with it? Do I have concerns with it? Um, is this, like, ideal? Of course not. No, it's not. But do I love it? Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I really do. Um, especially since, you know, they took over six city blocks and residents around, they're not bothered by it and it's totally chill and, you know, all that. And, and then on top of that, city council is still over here like, yeah, we're not going to use excessive force on you guys. Do your thing. That's fucking awesome. I fucking love Seattle. <laughs> I fucking love Seattle. Um, speaking of Seattle, we are still in Seattle for this episode. And ironically, a lot of it kind of relates to um, shit that's going on this year. So, alright, here we go. This is a haunting I heard long ago and totally forgot about. I forgot about it completely so much that when I walked the streets of Seattle and trekked my way through Pike Place Market and Post Alley, I completely walked by this place more than once and didn't even think twice. And I know I saw it because I made a mental note to circle back later because I have an affinity for Irish whiskey. But I never did. I never made it back. This week's paranormal case is of Kells Irish Pub in Seattle, a local staple located at 1916 Post Alley across from the famous Pink Door restaurant. This Irish pub has stood for over 30 years, owned and run by the Michaelis family. Due to its long history, alleged corrupt connections and a great deal of paranormal activity, this place is known as one of the most haunted sites in the whole city. Kells is located in the basement of the Butterworth building, and over a century ago, it was the city's first full-service mortuary, opened by E.R. Butterworth, at a time where the city was plagued by disease, but it would seem the death business made him quite greedy and in turn connected the Butterworth family to a serial killer posing as a doctor. And some of her victims never crossed over. The sources I used for this story were IrishCentral.com, Curbed Seattle, a Seattle Times article written by Stuart Eskenazi, a SeattleMet.com article written by James Ross Gardner, a Como TV News 4 segment from 2010, Ghost Adventures Season 4, Episode 14, and, of course, Wikipedia. Edgar Ray Butterworth was born in 1847 in Massachusetts. He was the grandson of a revolutionary veteran and spent much of his childhood between Massachusetts and Minnesota. 
ER was only 14 when the Civil War broke out and attempted to enlist three times, each time being sent home for being too young. He began to study law in Massachusetts and was accepted into the bar at 21. In 1869, at the age of 22, he married his first wife, Grace. She would die two years later during childbirth to their son, Gilbert. E.R. would drop his studies and move to St. Louis with his son, where he worked as a hatter. After marrying his second wife, Maria, they would relocate to Kansas. This is where E.R. would become a cattleman and bone collector. He would collect animal bones, mostly buffalo, from the plains to sell to manufacturers. One day, while on the plains searching for carcasses, Butterworth came across a settler who had just lost his wife and child. The man was distressed as he had no casket to bury them in. Sympathizing, he took his wagon apart and mantled a coffin for him, the first one Butterworth ever made. In 1881, Butterworth and his family moved to what is now Centralia, Washington and opened a furniture store. While a successful businessman, he also would serve on the city council as well as two terms as mayor and was a state legislator for Washington. Black diphtheria plagued the city, and Butterworth would then expand his furniture business to sell caskets. Seeing the opportunity other people's misfortune could bring him, Butterworth and his five sons moved to Seattle in 1892 to get into the undertaking business. Seattle in the late 1800s was a city overrun by death, plagued by epidemics like tuberculosis, diphtheria, influenza, cholera, and the actual plague. The streets crawled with rodents, there was poor sanitation, many people died in mining accidents, and the smallest percentage of people died of violent crimes. In fact, it was least likely someone was to die of murder than disease at the time. The influx of death was so bad and there was a lack of undertakers and proper burial services that bodies would regularly appear in the streets. The Butterworths settled in Seattle, purchasing an already operating undertaker business and starting their own in 1892. As the city's population grew, so did the business. They moved around downtown Seattle several times before purchasing the building located at 1921 First Avenue in what is now known as the Butterworth Building. This would be designed as the first ever purpose-built mortuary in the city's history and would go on to make the Butterworths the most successful and prominent undertakers in Seattle and become famous for, quote, revolutionizing the death business. ER hired famous Seattle architect John Graham, whose son would go on to design the Space Needle to design the new mortuary. The Butterworth building was five stories total, however, because it is located on a steep hill, which is typical Seattle, the front of the building on First Avenue you see three stories, however, the back side from Post Alley you have access to the lower two levels. ER made Graham draw up eight different blueprints before finally settling on one. Butterworth and Sons Mortuary opened in 1903, three years before Pike Place Market would open just two blocks away. According to Seattle Curbed, it was a marvelous palace of death. 
the building was done up in a Beaux-Art style of the era, in stained mahogany, Flemish oak, art glass, brass and bronze fixtures, decorative plaster. This place was decked out from top to bottom. James Ross Gardner said there was nothing like it in the United States, maybe nothing like it in the world. The building also housed the very first operating elevator on the west coast as bodies would be admitted through the post alley ground level entrance and transported to the appropriate floor to be processed for whatever service was requested. The ground level also housed the building's heating plants, stables, and funeral wagons. It is where Kells Irish Pub sits today. The next floor up, which now serves as Kells private banquet room, was once used as a storage room and held fireproof vaults to store bodies. The third floor is also the main entrance level from First Avenue, which contained offices, morgues, an embalming room, and a utensil room. A separate entrance door led to the funeral chapel with a capacity of 200 people, 150 on the main floor and 50 on the balcony. There was also a separate balcony for a choir and a smaller adjacent room for a clergyman and family with a private bathroom. The next floor up was the casket showrooms, as well as burial garments for women and an office for consultations. Prices for the coffins varied from $25 to $200, and the garments from $4 to $125. The luxury coffins were held in the main level, and those prices were as high as $890. And finally, the top floor, which had flats for the morgue employees, and they had their own separate entrance at the south end of the building. The building was also equipped with a crematorium and a columbrium for storing urns. ER had thought of it all, and he made his mortuary a one-stop full funeral service, even operating ambulances and renting out one of the morgues to King County for performing autopsies. People of all walks of life passed through the mortuary, as there was a wide range in prices intended to serve everyone, rich or poor. In no time at all, Butterworth and Sons Mortuary handled every single death in Seattle. A typical package included removal of the body and transport to the mortuary, full care of the body, which included washing, embalming, and dressing, funeral at the chapel and cemetery, notices in the newspaper, procuring a death certificate and burial permit, use of the sealed vault, casket with or without embellishments, floral arrangements, musicians, choir, hearse, and limo services. Pretty much the modern American funeral. The focal point of the packages, or rather the selling point, was the embalming. At the time, embalming was still a newer practice and was not accessible to most. Not even Europe was handling their dead this way, which I'll come back around to in a bit. And this new feature completely changed funeral services forever. Needless to say, and with the Spanish flu around the corner, the death business had made E.R. Butterworth filthy fucking rich. And yet, it wasn't enough for the guy. As I said earlier, Butterworth and Sons Mortuary handled every single dead body in Seattle in the early 1900s, and there was such a high influx of death to disease that the streets were littered with bodies. It was so bad that the city started offering to pay its citizens $50 per body that they picked up and dropped off at the mortuary. 
$50 in the early 1900s, we're talking between $1,000 and $1,500 today. So yeah, the community definitely threw themselves into cleaning up the streets. The kicker? E.R. Butterworth would collect half of those $50 per body. That's pretty suspicious if you ask me. It was just another opportunity to make himself even more wealthy. Even worse, neither he nor any of his employees would ask questions when the bodies turned up. They would take them in and quickly dispose of the bodies in the crematorium without even performing autopsies, which is completely unethical and corrupt. It is now theorized that his greed caused him to start having people killed, and since autopsies weren't high on people's priority lists, he was able to get away with it by cremating them quickly. Despite that, ER and his son Gilbert, who was his right-hand man and was the manager of the mortuary, remained very popular with the community. Until they were suspected of being accomplices of one Dr. Linda Hazard. This is a case I was hoping to make a true crime episode later on, but we're just going to talk about it now. Linda Hazard, for some reason, without a medical degree or formal training, was given a license by the state of Washington to practice medicine. She described herself as a fasting specialist. She believed food was the root of disease and believed that fasting can cure it specifically cancer. She even wrote a book published in 1908 called Fasting for the Cure of Disease, and for some reason it attracted many patients from different parts of the world to be treated by Hazard. While a patient was under the care of Linda Hazard, she would starve them and only let them have vegetable broth and administer enemas daily and they received intense massages bordering on beatings. All of her patients became very weak and many would faint frequently, and quite a few died. Their bodies would pass through the mortuary. Not only did Linda Hazard torture her patients, but she also had them all sign over their bank accounts and possessions to her, as well as power of attorney. And when they died, Linda would take it all and she was seemingly getting away with it until the Williamson sisters. Claire and Dora Williamson came under the care of Linda Hazard after hearing of her while visiting British Columbia. The women hailed from England and were known to be eccentric and seek alternative forms of medicine. After a few months, Claire would succumb to the starvation, and once the family was informed and by the time they reached Seattle, the body had already been taken to Butterworth Mortuary and had been embalmed, and to their surprise, the body they were shown was not Claire. They were sure of it. Now, it can be easily argued that because Europeans weren't used to the embalmment practice at the time, that that's why they didn't recognize her body. However, upon seeing Dora, she was weighing in at about 50 pounds and very near death from the starvation practice. Claire's body was substantially healthier looking, as well as the fact that her face shape, eyes, and hair were all completely different. Once law enforcement was brought in, they believed that Butterworth colluded with Hazard and that it wasn't the first time. 
During the trial, one of the mortuary employees pled guilty to illegally removing the body from the Hazard Sanitarium. It is now believed that the real body of Claire Williamson was cremated without authority and replaced with another cadaver to show her family. Hazard served two years in prison for manslaughter. The Butterworths were never charged with a crime, but were hit with a $25,675,000 today lawsuit for the desecration of Claire's body. The connection to Hazard hurt the Butterworths' reputation and name, but eventually recovered since people didn't have much of a choice when it came to the deaths of their loved ones. Gilbert was also a fucking train wreck. While he was the manager of the mortuary and in charge of the day-to-day operations, the Spanish flu pandemic broke out in 1917. This was towards the end of World War I, and the virus was spread by the traveling soldiers and sailors. To slow the spread, all public gatherings were banned, and no one was permitted on the streets without a surgical mask. Now, that... That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds sounds very relevant. Anyway, by the end of 1918, 1,003 Seattle residents died of the virus. The most hit was the Naval Training Station due to poor sanitation practices, and since the Navy was obligated to cover funeral expenses for each person, they entered a contract with Butterworth and Sons where the military would pay $100 for each sailor's casket, shipment of their bodies, and Butterworth would invoice the government. Well, let me tell you what fucking Gilbert did. He billed the sailors' families full price for the caskets and then pocketed the government payouts. He was indicted on 43 counts of fraud and U.S. Marshals arrested him. And like his dad, he was filthy fucking rich and afforded the best legal team he could buy, including the same defense lawyer that Linda Hazard used. After the jury failed to reach a decision, the case went into a retrial where the defense was able to get all but two of the charges dropped. Unbelievable. And yet, the business carried on. E.R. Butterworth died in 1921 after a series of strokes, left his sons the business and $200,000, which is $2.9 million today which they used to move the mortuary from 1921 First Avenue to 300 East Pine Street in Capitol Hill. Butterworth and Sons Mortuary was passed down from generation to generation, becoming one of Seattle history's longest operating family-owned businesses until it was sold in 1998 by ER's great-grandson. The Butterworth Building and 1921 First Avenue went on to host many different business ventures, many of them restaurants, neither of them lasting very long, and the building often remained empty. The McAleese family purchased the bottom level to open their famous Kells Irish Pub in 1983, and then in 2005, they purchased the entire building. The history of the building attracted the family. 
but they had no idea what they were in for. Now here comes the fun part, the ghosts. The Butterworth Building has become somewhat of an attraction for those interested in the paranormal and is a stop on several ghost walking tours, particularly the chapel. It has also been site of several TV investigations, including ghost adventures. A shaman once came and counted approximately 19 ghosts in the entire building. According to historian and ghost tour director Mercedes Yeager, some of the spirits are very angry. Considering the nature of their deaths, there may be no closure for them. Some of the spirits appear emaciated and are possible former patients of Dr. Hazard. Allegedly, the building sits on an old burial ground of the Suquamish tribe, which I hope is not a nice way of saying we pillaged this land and murdered its people and dumped their bodies in the soil and then we built our roads and businesses over it. Get mad, I don't care, we all know it's true. There have been eyewitness accounts of a man with a long beard, which is something E.R. Butterworth was known for. It was his most distinguishable attribute. People have fainted in front of the building, even if they're just passing through. Construction workers, patrons, and staff have run out scared. Doors would swing on their own or doors would slam right behind you. Often an employee would pass through a swinging door and while the doors are still swinging, they would catch someone peeking into the room really quickly. People hear whispers in their ears and often feel energies resulting in goosebumps and chills. Patrons of the pub are often overcome with feelings of sadness or happiness. In 1999, a voodoo priestess was brought in to do a ritual on Halloween. It was a PR stunt, but she was legitimate, and it's possible she could have attracted more activity. Avenue 1, a restaurant in the main level of the building that ran from 1997 to 2002, had several incidents involving spirits. There was a time that two wine bottles flew off the wine racks and narrowly missed the manager's head. Another time, a vase went missing, and after some time, it randomly turned up on a table that had just been set. A patron fled after he witnessed an old woman in a shawl walk into a wall and disappear. A chef once was on a ladder and screwing on a light bulb when beneath him appeared what looked like a procession walking through the ladder. The owner, Arnie Millen, claimed they didn't have any negative effect on the business and in fact celebrated it on Halloween every year. Before Avenue One, there sat another restaurant called Cafe Sophie. The owners, Scott and Sue Craig, claimed they never saw anything but have, quote, no doubt our place had some sort of spiritual vibration. Loyal customers always insisted they felt something at a specific table, and they called it the haunted booth. One night, diners in the booth taunted the spirits to show themselves, and then a huge chunk of plaster fell from the ceiling and landed about five feet from the table. Sue Craig did also once walk into the bathroom and saw a pair of shoes in a stall vanish into thin air. 
Raquel's Irish Pub and Restaurant opened in 1983 and is owned by the McAleese family. It is currently managed by Karen and Patrick McAleese. I want to say they're siblings, but I think they're actually cousins. I'm not sure. I could not figure that one out. But when Patrick was a teenager and his parents ran the pub, he recalls a wall mirror in the back bar, which was closed at the time, fall to the floor and shatter, and there was no one in there at the time. But when they heard the crash and ran to see what happened, they found the pieces of the mirror in a perfectly neat pile, and a single candle on the bar was burning that no one had lit. According to Karen, a lot of activity happens during renovations, as the building has been through quite a few. One afternoon, a workman was alone and taking photos of the progress in the banquet room upstairs, and he captured a, quote, deathly pale man with very dark, gaping eyes. He was peering in through a crack in the door, and his mouth was sewn shut. Sewing lips together was a common mortician's practice back in the day. The place was also most active during the month of November, and according to Mercedes Yeager, this is believed because of the Spanish flu pandemic. The most loss happened during the second wave in November of 1918. The bar is allegedly stocked with holy water to ward off ghosts, although I've heard from clairvoyants that holy water doesn't do anything to spirits so I suppose this is just some form of comfort for the owners and staff. In the pub's early years, during construction, workmen and members of the McAleese family, including a teenage Patrick, were staying the night in the pub and all in sleeping bags after a long day of work and they had another long day the next. At 3 a.m., they awoke to the sound of heavy footsteps pacing and then the sound of a big metal door opening and slamming shut on its own. According to Patrick, the temperature dropped 30 degrees. The next day, they had a priest come in to do a blessing. Muddy handprints often appear on windows after they've been cleaned, and pretty often kitchen staffers have seen apparitions of a woman in the kitchen, as well as a man in period clothing. A cook was once so spooked by it that he wielded a kitchen knife. There have been reports of silverware levitating. The scent of formaldehyde lingers from time to time, which is common. Um, ghost scents, you smell something that's not there. I've experienced this firsthand and it's really freaky. Like, I once woke up at like 3 a.m. and I felt someone watching me and there was this strong scent of roses. One of the more common activities is glasses sliding off the bar and breaking. It happens so often that the staff doesn't even react and are used to it. The bar has motion sensor cameras that often go on at night with the screen flickering, but there'd be nothing or no one there. Strange mists have also been sighted late at night. Staff often experience hearing unexplained banging noises faint whimpers, women's disembodied voices, and feet shuffling or pacing, even if there's no one around. On All Saints Day in 2005, Karen was alone when she saw a tall man in a white suit appear from the back, and he walked alongside the bar. 
and by the time he reached the end, he faded away. According to her, he had a gaunt face, was extremely thin, and had two pieces of paper in his hand. Many orbs and EVPs have been captured. The stairwell between the pub and the banquet hall has been the primary source for orb photos, as well as Karen's mother getting pushed down the stairs by an invisible force. Another evening, a security guard spotted a little girl in the stairwell, thinking she was separated from her parents, and since children are not allowed in the pub at night, he went after her, and she took off up the stairs. He said he remembers hearing her giggling and the pitter-patter of her feet, and then suddenly she was gone, and it was silent. This little girl is one of the more well-known and consistent spirits in the pub. She is often described as having curly blonde or red hair, wears a red taffeta dress, and carries an old raggedy teddy bear. She tends to appear when there is traditional Irish music playing, and sometimes she plays pranks on patrons, but mostly she just wants to play with other children. She's most active during the day because that's when children are allowed in and will appear in either the main room or the stairs. She is both shy and curious and is regarded as friendly and harmless by the staff. In fact, most of the spirits in the pub are and tend to latch onto the happy environment. Her identity is unknown, but it is believed she may have been one of the many children who succumbed to the Spanish flu. The other well-known and frequent spirit is Charlie, an older man who wears a long black coat and a derby hat. He tends to frequent the stage area or the end of the bar and is usually seen when live music is playing, and he is quite possibly the most famous ghost because the people that notice him most often are the musicians from the stage. Sammy is a spirit who is often seen in the Guinness mirror on the back wall. People have said that when looking into the mirror, they see a man's face looking right at you. But if you turn around and look back at him, he isn't there. And when you turn back to the mirror again, he's smiling at you. Well, that's going to be a hard pass for me. There's also a sort of local legend in the pub that there's a small ornate whiskey bar in the back corner, which is easy to overlook, but if you pay close attention to it, sometimes the candles on the bar will light up on their own. The Ghost Adventures crew visited the pub in 2010 during their fourth season of filming. Now this was way back when I religiously watched the show and I remember seeing them go to the gum wall and thinking, Seattle is so freaking weird, I have to go there. Besides conducting their own investigation for the show, they also invited a group of people to do an EVP session with them in what used to be the morgue and caught several EVPs. They also participated in a news segment with Como TV News, who did their own televised investigation. During their lockdown, they caught several EVPs. They didn't take to Zach at all, but I mean, who does? They also felt several cold spots and distinct energies throughout the building. They heard heavy boots shuffling in the chapel. They brought Karen in to do an EVP session in the middle of the night and caught some evidence there, as well as another EVP referring to Dr. Linda Hazard, which is groundbreaking considering the connection to her. 
and the most damning evidence of all, on the stairs, they caught a photo of what looked like a child sitting at the top of the stairs of the pub, hunched over, and a few minutes later, they caught an EVP that said, looking for my child. Is it possible that the child on the stairs was the little girl in the red dress? With its long and dark history, Kells Irish Pub and Restaurant is often referred to as the most haunted pub in America. Once a place that hosted thousands of people passing through the mortuary and into the afterlife, it is clear that many of them never left. Despite their presence, the Michaelis family keeps going and actually welcomes the spirits. Karen's take on it is, my attitude was if they're here and this is their bar, then they're more than welcome to stay. This could also have to do with a medium once telling her that one of the spirits in the pub is her own father. It would seem that the staff and the spirits cohabitate that place just fine. And if anyone wishes to check it out for themselves, even if it's just for the drinks and music, you'll be in for an eventful time. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening, and if it's on Apple, kindly leave us a rate and review as it's a huge help to us and we'd greatly appreciate it. We post episodes every Friday, unless I need another mental health check, and don't worry, I'll always let you know otherwise. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find our Twitter handle at WTTNP, and our Facebook and Instagram can be found with the handle at WTTNPodcast. We'd also love to hear your stories. If you've had a ghostly encounter you'd like to share with us, email us a voice recording at welcometotheneighborhoodpod at gmail.com or send it to us through DM. If you'd prefer to type it instead of recording yourself, that's fine too. Now tune in next week. I'm going back to Chicago with another true crime case. Everyone out there fighting the good fight, be smart and stay safe out there. Thanks for stopping by.